as we kind of continue our story with this uh, amazing guy's life. <clears throat> and we've been, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, kind of as we've walked through these, this guy's story, um, you have discovered that basically so far Daniel's life has been one kind of crisis after another. And again, this week is the same way. And uh, so I'm going to kind of just, just give you a pop quiz to kind of wake you up a little bit um, to see how well you're thinking about crisis management stuff. The pitter-patter of the rain, the first service um, it was a little drowsy, and so I, I wanted to make sure you're with me here this morning. Um, so this is, does anyone remember the book that came out several years ago called uh, The Worst Case Scenario Handbook? Anybody remember that? My mom gave me a calendar, actually, that had a daily thing. It was basically like how to manage all the difficult things that could quite possibly befall you in life. Things like, what do you do if you jump out of an airplane with a parachute and it doesn't open? That was actually one of the things. What do you do? It tells you how to survive. (laughs) Um, For instance, it says, like, you should find a person who's jumping with you, a jumping companion whose chute hasn't opened, and they become your new best friend. Um... But it's things like that. What do you do if you have to jump from a speeding car? That was actually one of the things. So it's things that, you know, you've seen movies and stuff, and you kind of wonder. These are actual, like, experts how to do these things. Well, here you go. What do you do if you're confronted by an angry mountain lion? I don't know if there's any mountain lions in Illinois. But let's say on Michigan Avenue in Chicago, you're confronted by an angry mountain lion. What do you do? Let me, let me just get pop quiz here. A, you run. B, you play dead. C, you make yourself look as large as possible. Not sure exactly how you do that, but you would do that. Or D, you sing a gentle, happy song. <laughs> Any guesses? D, C, anybody? Uh, D and C, anybody else? A or B? <laughs> Run faster than the friend you're with. You're way ahead of me here. Actually, it is, supposedly, it is the one about keeping your opening, making yourself big, see, making yourself as big as possible. But the second question that was approached is, what if you are with a small child? Let's say you're hiking in Colorado or something, you have a small child with you, what do you do? A, you pick up the child. B, you shield the child with your body. C, you shield your body with the child. (laughs) Or D, and here's Dave's, you run... You may not be able to run, outrun the mountain lion, but you can probably outrun the small child. <laughs> Any guesses? It's A, actually. Pick the child up. Again, trying to make yourself look large. I'm not sure why that intimidates mountain lions, but apparently it psychs them out. Um, okay. Well, we're going to talk about another cr- uh, crisis that uh, the guys and Daniel are dealing with. Daniel chapter 3. And I'm excited about this week because not only is this probably the second most well-known story in the book of Daniel, Um, you have Daniel Lyons Den number one, this one is number two, Uh, and they made a VeggieTales movie out of this if you weren't aware of that. But I was told by a friend of mine uh, last week that this story actually made a huge impact on his spiritual journey. He was a person that really didn't, wasn't sure if he believed in God at all, and through the process of coming to faith, came to that place where he said for the first time, okay, I do I do acknowledge that there is a God, there is a higher power, there is a being out there that is eternal. But the next kind of wave of emotions that come, came to him were feelings of anger. Okay, if there is a God, then why has this God allowed some bad things happen in my life? Why does he allow some of the things he allows to happen in this world? And it was this story that really helped him start to move past some of those feelings and into a deeper relationship with God and eventually turning his heart and life over to Christ.
Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Give you a little bit of history here just so you kind of catch up. Daniel uh, was a guy who was raised in Israel. He was um, the fair-haired boy. He was well-educated. He was good-looking. He came of an influential, wealthy family. The world was his oyster. And all of a sudden, a foreign army comes in, wipes out his homeland, wipes out his city, kills his family, his friends, drags him off as a slave into a foreign country. All of his hopes, all his, da- all his dreams, everything has been dashed. And that's where he finds himself, working kind of as a slave and as a servant and then eventually promoted um, in, as a palace kind of official for this king, Nebuchadnezzar, who is king, king of, the, of Babylon, which was the most powerful empire at that time. So he's like the most powerful guy in the most powerful kingdom. Uh, and that's, that's Nebuchadnezzar's story. We're going to find out a little more about him next week as well. Uh, verse 2. He then summoned, Nebuchadnezzar summoned all the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, and magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. And these are all of the who's who. These are all the influential people of that culture. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you're commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, I don't know what a zither is, but we need one in the band, a lyre, a harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that the King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Uh, just I want to say a word here about the connection between worship and music. You may think that that's kind of an American church thing, the fact that we do worship with music. It actually isn't. Uh, in pretty much every culture that's ever been, they've associated worship of their gods and music together. And I think that there's something, um, something kind of spiritual and supernatural about that we may not all fully understand. There's something that happens to us, I think, in our souls when music and worship are kind of intertwined. And I think every culture has recognized that at some level. So I, I say that to say that you may be one of those people that says, well, music's not my thing or singing's not my thing, and that, that may be fine. But I invite you, even if it's not your thing, to kind of get past all that and to kind of f- allow yourself to fully engage in the, in the worship experiences we have here together. Verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Archaeologists have discovered that actually this is something they did. They burned people in furnaces. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the hort, the, the horn, the hort, the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples and nations and men of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay, stop here for a second, kind of catch ourselves up. Nebuchadnezzar last week has a dream. It's a dream about an image. The top of the image is gold, uh, gold head, gold shoulders, uh, uh, silver chest, bronze, abdomen, thighs of iron, and feet of iron and clay. And Daniel interprets the dream and says, this represents all these different kingdoms that are going to come along. And there's this ultimate kingdom that God's going to set up that's going to outlast all of them. These are all going to be temporal kingdoms. But your kingdom is a pretty cool kingdom. Your kingdom is the best kingdom. It's the kingdom of gold at the top of the, the head. And Nebuchadnezzar seems to have some kind of beginnings of turning to God, and he opens himself up to God a little bit, but he's still not there, and it, it seems like he kind of decides, well, you know, it is pretty significant that I am the head of gold, and so I'm going to set up this idol, this, this image, to kind of remind people that this is a pretty cool kingdom that I'm a part of. Uh, we, we're not told exactly what the image is, whether it's an image of him, whether it's an image of some god, but the point of this is to bring honor to himself and to bring honor to his kingdom and in some level to unify this multicultural kind of uh, culture that he's a part of. 
Um, and he uses every possible motivation to get people to bow down. He uses beauty, the beauty, the beauty of this gold statue, wealth, because it's obviously worth uh, a lot of money, awe, music, political influence, all of the who's who around the culture are there. And he even uses pain, the threat of pain and death to get people to bow down. And I want you to picture this scene. The text indicates um, that as soon as people heard the music, they fell on their faces. It's almost like as they were hearing, they were falling. So they just immediately, it's a race to see who gets down first. And then this murmur begins to go through the crowd. Because three very high-ranking officials are still standing in the midst of this massive crowd. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They're pointing them out. They're kind of tattling on these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The word denounce is a very harsh word. It actually literally means to eat the pieces of. It's like they're chewing on them. Verse 13, skipping ahead, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Just the fact that I think he gave them a second chance is actually kind of a significant statement. It shows how much he respected them. If you remember uh, from knowing about Nebuchadnezzar the last two weeks, he's not the most tolerant, humane human being that's ever lived. He typically kind of kills people at the drop of a hat for no particular reason. So the fact that he gives them a second chance shows how much of an impact they've made on him. Then he says, so I'm going to throw you into the blazing furnace, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? This is a rhetorical question. I am, the, I am you know, the king and I am powerful. I'm going to throw you into this furnace and you think you've you got some powerful God and you may, but you know, no God can really save you. It's a rhetorical. He doesn't expect an answer. He expects them to say, you're right. No God can save us from you. The furnace is right there. We'll bow down. Uh, we're all familiar with rhetorical questions. I was thinking about this this week. As parents, we do this all the time, right? With our kids, we ask rhetorical questions. We say things like, do you want a spanking? We don't really expect them to answer or ponder that and think, maybe I do. We, uh, and they didn't expe- he didn't expect that either. He expected them to go, you're right, and bow down. But instead, they actually do respond. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this manner. If, you were, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. Rather than kind of approach this story this week, how I do sometimes where I give a lot of practical things, I really wanted this to be a more reflective weekend, uh, particularly with communion. And so rather than kind of give you some practical things, I'm going to give you some, some, just some thoughts to kind of ponder, to reflect on today and as you walk through your week. And I'd encourage you to take these with you. They're very short little things. You can write them down on one little piece of paper, card or something. But I really think if you really spend some time reflecting on these statements, um, it will really show you the nature, the state of where your soul is. Where is your spiritual journey right now? The first thought for your reflection is this. It comes right out of their statement. The God we serve is able. They say, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. He will rescue us from your hand, O King. The God we serve is able. Ken Davis is a writer, tells a st- Christian writer, tells a story about a uh, missionary that went to Russia, I believe it was. Um, he was going to go there for a month and travel around and visit other churches and all over the country. And he was told by people, before you leave, um, we advise you to go shopping and get a backpack pu- full of little snacks, little things to eat, because A, you can't find a lot of those kinds of things, American kinds of things in Russia. 
B, you're going to be traveling a lot on trains and, you know, public transportation, buses, going for long distances, and it'll be nice just to have snacks around. Uh, so he goes, all right, that sounds like a good idea, practical. So he goes with his backpack, and he goes to the store, thinks, you know, I'm going to get a bunch of things to put in here. And he says to God, God, I have no idea what to get. I, you know, I've never done this before. You just kind of guide me. This may sound like a small thing, but I just, you know, you're, you know what I'm going to face over there. You just guide me. So he's walking along, and he, when he'd see something that would just kind of catch his eye, he'd think, well, maybe that's God's guiding, and he'd throw it in his bag. So like one was, he saw a, a, one of those jumbo packs of um, Reese's peanut butter cups. And he thought, oh, that'd be good. You know, I can have a sweet somewhere. Something else, you know, he went to the aisle with all the pudding snacks. You know, those little pudding cups that are sealed that they stay preserved for 40, 50 years. And he thought, I can, you don't have to be refrigerated. That'd be great. I can just throw them in, have a snack. And he loved tapioca pudding, which to me, if anybody is drawn to tapioca pudding, that has to be a God thing. So he takes the tapioca pudding. He puts it in his bag. He also sees in that same aisle little fruit cups, you know, those little fruit cups that don't need to be refrigerated as well. He thought that would be good as well, something healthy. And he gets all this stuff. He's over there for several weeks, and he ends up not needing hardly any of it. About the last week he's there, he... Um, goes to Christmas at, this, uh, at a family, a missionary family that's been, they're Americans, they've lived in this little village in Russia for several years, isolated from their friends and family, uh, working to bring the gospel there. And uh, it was almost Christmas time, so he thought, you know, I'm going to take what I have left, and I'm going to just use this as like an early little Christmas stocking stuffers for this family. They had two teenage girls, and so he said to the girls first, you know, if you could have anything in the world for Christmas that you want from America, what would it be? And he was expecting, you know, CDs or something, and they said candy. We cannot get candy here. And he said, what kind of candy? What's your favorite? Well, we love Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Well, cool. So he gives the Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. They're all like, oh, this is amazing. How did he know? And he's like, I don't know how I know. And then then he says to the the mother, what would you like to have? And it was just a dangerous thing to ask a grown-up because they could say, like, I'd like to go to the Bahamas for Christmas, you know. But she says, you know what I'd really like? We haven't, in this little village we are, we can't get citrus. I'd love to have citrus. We were from, like, California, and we can't get citrus here. So he pulls out these little fruit cups, and they all kind of celebrate. This is amazing. What a coincidence. And then lastly, he thinks, should I push my luck, you know, or, or should I just see what God is doing here? And so he says to the, to the dad, what would you like? And he goes, you know, uh, I miss, you know, my family and uh, the, my parents, and they don't get to see their grandkids and stuff. And my mom used to make the world's best homemade tapioca pudding, and I'd love to have some tapioca pudding. And he pulls that out of his bag. And Ken Davis' point is, even in the small things in life, sometimes we forget that God is able. The God we serve is able. He's able to reconcile broken marriages. He's able to heal disconnected families. He's able to help our kids grow up healthy and strong. He's able to liberate us from addictions or depression or anxiety. He's able to heal damaged bodies, to heal our darkest sins. He's able to provide for whatever needs we might have. He's able to guide us with supernatural insight at those forks in the road of our life. He's able to inspire us with gifts and passions and give us a sense of divine purpose as we walk through our day. He's able to soften the hardest hearts. He's able able to redeem the greatest prodigals. If we had time, we could take time in this room and I could hear stories and you would tell me ways of how God has shown up in your life and you'd say, God has been able. He's able in my life. This church, this campus to me is a testimony that God is able. The ministry that happens here, the life change, the baptisms, that God is able. My life is a testimony that God is able. The God we serve is able. But it doesn't start there. Stop there, I mean. Um, they say, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O King. But look at verse 18. I think this is the crux of the whole story. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. 
Thought for reflection number two is this. Will you be faithful even if he does not? Even if he does not. If you're like me and you read the story, I thought to myself, how much more do these guys have to go through? I mean, they already are in Babylon. They've already lost their homes, their national heritage, their families, their possessions, their religion. They've lost everything. They've been dragged off to a foreign country. They've lost their rights. How much more do they have to go through? Haven't they endured enough? And then this edict comes out that if you don't bow down to this image, you will be killed in a pretty painful way. And if I was them, I can imagine that they began to pray. And they said, God, please change Nebuchadnezzar's mind on this. He started to show like he was opening up to you, change his mind. But God didn't answer that prayer. Then they prayed, God, let this decree not be enforced. Sometimes laws don't get enforced. Let this decree not be enforced. And God didn't answer that prayer. They prayed, God, you know, Daniel, you put him in a place of influence in a remarkable way. Let him use that influence to change the king's heart. God didn't answer that prayer. God, don't let anybody notice. We'll stand, but it's a massive crowd. Maybe nobody will notice. We'll stand. God doesn't answer that prayer. And they have to put their life on the line again. In chapter 1, they do. They define the king's order about what to eat. Chapter 2, they have to go and say, yes, you're, you had this dream and you're a great king, but you're not the king. There is a greater king than you, and they could be killed for saying that. And now again, you wonder, isn't enough enough? How many times do they have to go through this? How many Babylons will they have to walk through? But they say, our God is able to save us. He's able to deliver us. He's able to redeem us. But even if he does not, in the face of death, we will remain true to the one true God. All you can do is kill us, king. Our souls are in God's hands. He's able to save us, but even if he does not. This is such a remarkable statement, and it's the crux of the whole story. Our God is able to do amazing things in my life and your life. But I ask you about what happens when he does not. The Bible is full of stories of people that have do not stories. Job. He lost his possessions, he lost his occupation, he lost his health, and then all of his children were killed in a terrible tragedy. And Job's response was, even if he slays me, I will still trust him. Esther, who had to put her life on the line on behalf of her people, and she said, if I perish, I perish. I will do what God has for me to do. Abraham was asked to sacrifice his own son, and he said, I'll do it because I believe in a God who can raise people from the dead, so even if he dies, he can be brought back. You and I have people close to us who have had struggles with health, depression, raising children, uh, job, finances, whatever. And we've prayed and we've fasted and we've anointed with oil and we've sought counsel from the elders in their prayer. God is able to do remarkable things, but even if he does not. A lot of us make deals with God. God, if you do this, I'll serve you. I'll give. I'll sacrifice. I'll be good. Will you follow Will you serve? Will you trust? Will you give? Will you share your faith? Will you live for him even if he does not? Maybe you're a single person and you're in a relationship where there's either external or internal pressure to cross certain moral boundaries that you know you shouldn't. And you're afraid of being alone. God is able to bring someone else into your life. But what if he does not? You're in a marriage that's been very hard and you've all your dreams for what this marriage could be have long since died. God is able to redeem that marriage, but even if he does not, will you fight to stay in it? You have a career that 
you had hopes for long ago and it's become this job that you go to that steals a little more life from you every day. Or you've been tempted to cut corners to try to keep up with everybody else. God is able to make that situation turn out right, but even if he does not. Maybe it's a financial thing. What kind of devotion, what kind of commitment, what kind of priority does your financial life reflect? Just between you and God, right now, just be honest, between you and God, what kind of devotion, what kind of commitment, what kind of priority does your financial life reflect, really? Are you honoring the tithe? Have you made an imagined commitment or at least considered that, but it's a stretch, it's a sacrifice. And what if this happens, what if that happens? God is able to give back far more than we give to him, but that's not really the point, is it? The question is, will we honor God? Will we follow him even if he does not? Will we choose to worship a God of gold? Will we choose to let our life be about money and stuff and affluence? Or will we decide we will honor the true God? We will really worship, really glorify God with our whole lives. God is able, but even if he does not. I came across a quote this week I've been carrying with me all week. One cannot choose when and how one will die, but we can choose when and how we will live. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, if this is the day we die, then this is the day we die. That's not a choice that we can make, but we will choose how we will live, and we're going to live with a certain commitment. If you're like me, too often as you walk through your day, your spiritual life is affected maybe too greatly by stuff going on around you. If things are going well, it's easy for me to have a lot of trust, a lot of peace, a lot of joy. If things are not going well, sometimes I'm not easy to be around. See, the reason I think the writer of Daniel does not tell us what the image of gold is is because I think he wants to leave it vague on purpose. Because he wants us to understand that ultimately the name, the identity on that statue that that tempts us to bow a knee every day of our lives is the name me. The human race has been bowing the knee to the God of self for thousands of years. And so I ask you, are you willing to bow your knee to a higher God? The God of heaven, the one true God. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. That doesn't literally mean seven times, like they had a thermometer and they were actually being accurate. That's a metaphor in the, in the Hebrew language. It means a lot, like uh, in Proverbs, it says, a fool, if a fool falls seven times, it, means, it just means a lot. So it's a, tremendously hotter. Verse 20, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in an army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. Have you ever burned yourself? You know, I burned myself on a sparkler when I was a kid. I picked it up when I thought it was off and it wasn't. And you know how that, that feeling just stays in your skin for like days and days? I can't imagine what these guys thought they were going to be facing here short, shortly. Verse 21, So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent that the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, Just see the, the kind of blind rage, the total disregard this king has for human life. He's so consumed with his own anger that it just is, you know, oblivious to his own people being killed. Verse 23. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. The three amigos were about to become three taquitos. Verse 24. Um, then King Nebuchadnezzar, I don't know why I just said that. King Nebuchadnezzar, I didn't say that in any other services. It just popped into my brain. <sighs> okay. 
Then King Nebuchadnezzar, sometimes you should have unuttered thoughts. Um, he leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. Do you notice that's all these guys ever say? Certainly, O king. Certainly, O king. No matter what they, they're asked, would you like to be beheaded? Certainly, O king. Verse 25, he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. We're not really told exactly who the identity of this person is. Some people speculate it's Jesus pre-incarnate, maybe an angel. But here's the deal. This is God's presence with them in the midst of the fire. And so they kind of have this little small group meeting in there. Four people kind of gathered together, walking around, uh, encouraging one another. Maybe they had an open chair, but it got burned up. And uh, you, you ever wonder what the fourth person in the furnace said to the other three? And I wonder if he said how much God was proud of them. That from now on, their story would be written down. And people all over the world and other continents and other languages for thousands of years who are going through trials and pain and facing death would read their story and find strength there. I don't know what he told them. But I do know that they found God's presence in the furnace. And what was supposed to be the worst moment of their life turns out to be the best. Which leads me to the third thought for reflection. Our God is a God who delivers people from the furnace but sometimes he meets us in the furnace. God says to us, I will deliver you sometimes, but maybe more often than not, I'll meet you in the furnace. Most of you know that being a Christian doesn't mean your life is easier than anybody else's, but just to make sure we're all on the same page, I'll say that again. Jesus said, life in this world is hard. Psalm 23 says, we'll all walk through the valley of the shadow of death at one time or another in our lives. Paul said, I've got this thorn in my flesh and God won't take it away. People have been martyred for their faith for thousands of years. Your story and my story, we're, it's the same. We've had struggles, job struggles, marriage struggles, feelings of betrayal, struggles with a child, feelings of loss and grief, inner turmoil that we deal with on the inside. Life is not easy and it never will be. God never promises to deliver us from the furnaces of life, but he will meet us in the furnace. And maybe that's the message that some of you need to hear that whatever furnace you're going through this morning, he's there with you. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. I would have loved to see that. I wonder how, I, I, maybe they moonwalked out, I don't know. But I would imagine they're feeling pretty good. Verse 27, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. The robes were not scorched, nor was there no smell of fire on them. It's like total protection. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, I, I, this is the funniest thing to me. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. servants. Notice what he says. They trusted in him and defied the king's command. Who's the king? He is. You guys are awesome. You disobeyed me. woo -hoo. It's amazing. And we're willing to give up their lives rather than serve the wor and or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I decree that the... <laughs> this also this makes me laugh. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego should be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. He's really into that. Have you noticed that? For no other God can save in this way. He doesn't really get the whole like freedom of religion thing. He's not a highly tolerant person. You will bow down this golden island or I'll kill you. Forget that. You will bow down to this or, or I'll kill you. People, I'm sure people in Babylon are like, yee, all the time. <laughs> we don't know what to do. Uh, verse 30. The king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And let's kind of we're pick, leave the story off. We don't know what happens to these three guys. This is the last we ever hear of them. We don't know what the rest of the story was like. 
But they were, came to this fork in the road in their lives, and they had a very simple choice. Bow down, you get life. Don't bow down, you face death. And they chose death, and they were honored for it. But more than that, here's what I want you to see. If they had chosen life, if they had chosen to bow the knee, they would have missed the adventure of their lives. They would have missed what would have been the defining moment of their life with God. Which leads me to number four, and this one has been so convicting to me this week. Maybe you and I, we should stop asking for less heat and instead ask for more of God. See, the great irony of the story is what appears to be the worst, painful, most dangerous place for them in their lives ends up being the most life-giving, best, most joyous place for them to be. Why? Because that's where God was. See, I think about my own life. I think about the way I live my life. I think about the way I pray. Most of my life is lived, and most of my prayers circle around the idea of furnace avoidance. God, make my life easier. God, help me with this problem at home. God, help me with this problem at work. God, help this situation with my kids. God, do this, do that. God, bring the heat levels down. Maybe I should be praying an entirely different prayer. Maybe I shouldn't be praying for less heat. Maybe I should be praying for more of God. I don't know what kind of heat you're facing what kind of furnace you're in, what kind of Babylon you find yourself in. Maybe it's a job situation. I talk to people pretty regularly who say, come up to me after service, who call me, email me, and say, would you pray for me and help me pray that I will find a new job? I work with a bunch of fallen, you know, uh, frustrating, difficult people every day. Well, you know what? So do I. And so do the people who work with me. Because that's life. That's humanity. But maybe God has put you in a place, and it's not about getting out of the heat, it's about finding God there. Maybe it's a marriage thing, maybe it's an inner struggle. I don't know what kind of heat you may be facing. But God will meet you in the furnace. I presided over a funeral Thursday afternoon a family um, they got pregnant nine months ago things were going great they really celebrated this was their first child so you know how it is you, f- you celebrate when you find out you celebrate every milestone you celebrate the, you know the the first sonogram the first kick all those kinds of things things were going wonderful a couple days before they had one of their final doctor appointments things were great she started having contractions. She so went into the hospital. She so could tell by the nurses' faces that things weren't great anymore. And the baby was born dead inexplicably. Their first child, little Riley Renee, her life was over as it started. As I was standing behind this little tiny casket Thursday afternoon, I was thinking to myself, I do believe in a God who is able. But what about when he does not? Do I know this God who will meet me in the furnace? As I watched this family who sat on the front row, very, very sad, as you can imagine, behind their sadness, there was this strength, there was this faith, there was this trust, there was this kind of peace that really, truly was beyond understanding. And you could look at them and you could just tell God was meeting them in the furnace. There's a guy named Paul in the New Testament that had a very hard life. He had a lot of heat, a lot of furnace time, a lot of time in Babylon. 
And several times he went to God and said, God, will you take at least some of this heat away? I can barely stand it. And every time God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you to carry this heat. Near the end of his life, this is what he wrote, 2 Corinthians 4. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our inner strength in the Lord is growing every day. These troubles and sufferings of ours are, after all, quite small and won't last very long. Yet this short time of distress will, uh, will result in God's richest blessing upon us forever and ever. So we do not look at what we can see right now, the troubles all around us, the heat, the furnace, but we look forward to the joys in heaven, which we have not yet seen. The troubles will soon be over, but the joys to come will last forever. Again, I don't know what kind of Babylon you're facing, what kind of heat, what kind of furnace you're in. God is able to take us out of that but more often he wants to meet us there and he wants to meet you there. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, I thank you for the courage of these three very young men and their willingness to face death in order to honor you. God, I ask that you would give us the same courage um, to know that you are a God who is able to do remarkable and miraculous things and yet more often than that, you want to meet us in the furnace. And will we trust you even when you do not? Even when you do not save the day? God, we thank you for your amazing love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think it's